0: Well, good morning, church family, and if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, my name is Randy, and I'm the lead minister here at the church, and I just want to welcome you here uh, to our church family. Um, If you're new, I'm just hoping that in a very short amount of time, you just feel like you've come home. Um, So my wife and I watch some TV together, and when she's not watching the golf channel with me, yeah. Okay. You understand now. We watch those Fixer Upper shows, right? You see those Fixer Upper. That's our deal. <laughs> Golf Channel for Fixer Upper, right? It's a good trade. And so we um, watch that. We watch uh, what are the other ones? Uh, good Bones, uh, Flip Flop, uh, 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 Fort Worth, uh, Rustic Rehab, those kinds of shows. Um, and and. I have, I'm all thumbs. I just don't have that gift. And I wish I did. I don't. I brought a, <laughs> I brought a miter saw home one time. I thought I scared her to death. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? And can you keep your fingers? And all of that. I mean, so anyway. Um, so we watch these shows. And what's common about several of these shows is that in the project, there's typically a piece of furniture or a feature that's highly personalized. So the hosts will take something memorable to the owner and they'll spruce it up or they'll make it as a part of the room decor, et cetera, et cetera. And what that means is this, furniture is not just furniture. It, it's personal. It tells a story. It's personal to the owner. It means something. It's significant. Which leads me to this piece of wood. To you, it's just a piece of wood. Uh, not to me. There's a story here. This, this slab tells a story. Take a look at this slide. So this slab of wood came from that old house. That is in Windyville, Missouri. So you go to Springfield, Missouri, southwest Missouri, and you go north, Springfield, not much larger than Champaign-Urbana, Springfield has a suburb. It's called Buffalo, Missouri. Buffalo has a suburb. Okay? Okay? It's called Windyville. Windyville is a gas station, and there's a post office there too. So it's all there. That's it. Gas station, pick up your mail, fill your car up. That's Windyville. My grandfather grew up in that house. His grandfather, his father, John Silas Phillips. John Silas Phillips's grandfather. So my great 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 grandfather was Abraham Phillips who grew up in Blount County, Tennessee and they moved to Missouri and settled in Windyville and and John had several sons and my grandpa was Roscoe Phillips. Roscoe. And Roscoe's brother was Otto. Roscoe and Otto. And this is a piece of that old house. And Otto, Uncle Otto, wrote a poem. and kind of had it all shellacked on this, along with the picture. And the title of the poem is, If the Old House Could Talk. So don't you just call it a piece of wood. See, it talks. It tells a story. Uh, the Phillips family and Roscoe's daughter is Mary Louise Phillips and she's my mom see there's a story there see not just a piece of wood that's what I'm saying that furniture is not just furniture is it furniture tells a story all right does that make sense Now take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 31 because we're going to talk about furniture today, but it's not just furniture. There's a story, the story of the furnishings that make up the tabernacle. We've been in a study on the book of Exodus, if you're here for the first time, We sing and we learn God's Word here in our worship time. And we've been on a journey through the book of Exodus. We've learned about God, the Deliverer, how God delivered His people from Egyptian slavery, and then how God gave His law. And by law, what we mean is that it's His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Oh, how I love your law, the psalmist says, By it, I have more wisdom than my teachers. I've kept your word, I've kept your law in my heart that I might not sin against you. So when you hear law in this context, we're, we're not talking about oppressive regulations. We're talking about God's sweet, pleasant, perfect will his law law and then god the deliverer god the lawgiver and then god the architect and this is where we talk about the tabernacle this sacred tent that god had his people build that he would be in their presence god wants to be with us and so here are some different iterations of what that tabernacle looked like and uh, there's the tent, and then there's the perimeter. And you can see a couple of the articles of the furniture that we're going to talk about. For proportion's sake, this was about the size of the tabernacle and the perimeter. So it was about, think in your mind, it's about a, about a quarter of the size of a football field. That's kind of what the dimensions of the tabernacle were like. And, and so today we're going to look at the, the furnishings of the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 31 verses 1 through 11, there is a catalog or a list of these furnishings. I want to read Exodus 31, 1 through 11, and then I want to read Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. All right? The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to design, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. You get that there? Just stop there and just soak that in for a minute. This divine gifting Toward craftsmanship of uh, precious metals and designs and art. So there are echoes of a theology of art in these verses. Verse 6, And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab. So there's Bezalel and Oholiab, the son of Hissamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And here's the list, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons, and For their service as priests and the holy, uh, excuse me, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Right? Now, in Hebrews 9, 1 through 5, that's on page 1005 of your church Bibles, the Hebrew writer says this. Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. That's the tabernacle that we just saw there and that we just read about in Exodus 31. So there's continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. For a tent was prepared, the first section and the tablets of the covenant, so those were in the ark, in the mercy seat with the cherubim covered. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Hmm. Oh, I wish he had. It'd be helpful, wouldn't it? It would. It really would be helpful um, because there's because it's not just furniture. Don't just call it furniture, see. There's a story there. And so what I would like to to unpack this morning, I want to talk about seven furnishings of the tabernacle, seven furnishings, one story. The seven pieces of furniture that comprise the tabernacle, and there were only seven. That's not very many, really, when you think about it. I've got more than seven pieces of furniture in any one room of my house. So i got just seven. And seven tell of one story. So let's consider these seven pieces. Because the tabernacle talks, and the furnishings speak. And what are they saying? Well, first let's talk about the pieces of furniture. And the furniture is listed... In matters of first importance, Exodus 31, 1 through 11 are a summary of Exodus 25 to 30. Okay, so if you want the Cliff Notes version of five chapters, well, we just read it. Exodus 31, 1 through 11 is a Cliff Notes version, an executive summary of Exodus 25 to 30. And that started in the most important piece of furniture, this piece called the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, Um, literally the box of the covenant, which was the epicenter of God's presence. And it was just very, it was a very simple box. It was only about 45 inches wide by 27 by 27. So it really wasn't that large. It was made of uh, material called acacia wood. Acacia wood, that's wood that you'll see in the Bible. Acacia wood was like a, it was a hard wood, a dark red, brown, very attractive when polished. Um, And this acacia wood was overlaid with gold. And the lid was a slab of pure gold. And on the lid were two angels cherubim and their wings covered their faces and that between the wings of the cherubim was a place called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And in the box of the covenant contained the Ten Commandments. So get the symbolism there. Morality is contained in holiness. Morality is contained in holy divinity. If you take God out of the picture, you take away the reason for morality. I'm not saying that atheists can't be moral. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying they have no foundation to be moral other than personal preference. So the Ten Commandments are housed in holy divinity. And that box was located in Israel's most sacred space, a space called the Holy of Holies. It was a cube, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. Now think about that for just a moment. Unique to Israel among all the nations was the fact that their most sacred space had no image of God whatsoever no image of God, the high priest would enter that sacred space just once a year. And only the high priest could enter that sacred space. And there was no light in that room, that little cube, that cube. There was no light. So any any light came from the seven lamps from the previous room. It just kind of seeped in. And the priest would come and and the priest, in any other light, would be with the priest coming with a tray of burning coals. And on those coals, the priest would put incense. And that incense would rise, with smoke, would come up. And so the, even the ark, even in that dark, dim room, and the, the glow, light, and the presence of God would be veiled so there's mystery there in that room. And the high priest would offer incense and then the high priest would sprinkle on, on that mercy seat seven times from the blood of a goat and seven times from the blood of a bull. Once a year for the forgiveness of sins. How long did that take? I don't know. A half hour? I don't know. Not long. And once a year. And only the high priest could enter. This sacred space of Israel, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. No, it's not an image of God. The psalmist calls it a footstool. So, there's mystery there. Well, let's move on. Next piece of furniture deals with the inner curtain or the veil. And, oh my goodness, the color. And, uh, well, Scarlet and purple and blue. There's royalty there. And, and, and images of cherubim, angels, were stitched into the fabric. And what you must know is that the finest and best material for curtains are on the inside. And the more rugged curtain material hides and leather are on the outside. So God's beauty is veiled. There's this veiling of God's beauty. And... And then there's the altar of incense that's just outside the curtain. You see that? It's not that very big, 18 by 18 by 36 inches high. It was acacia wood overlaid with gold, and it had special incense. It was a special recipe, uh, only for God. So only God can wear his cologne. Don't wear God's cologne. It's his cologne. See, it's holy to him. And the incense burned uh, every morning and evening. And elsewhere in Scripture, we can deduce the symbolism of the incense. The incense symbolized the prayers of God's people. Psalm 141, verse 2. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Uh, In Revelation Revelation 5.8, incense rising to God is called the prayers of the saints. And the message is every morning, every night, continual. The message is keep praying. Pray and keep praying. Never stop praying. Jesus said in Luke 18.1, always pray and never give up. Because incense represents continual, effectual, fervent prayer. And oh my goodness, Tuesday morning at staff meeting, and it will happen this Tuesday morning. It happens for an hour in our elders' meetings. Incense rises before the Almighty because we pray for your prayer requests. We had four single-spaced pages last Tuesday morning. We prayed for every one of them by name. And do you need hope? Pray. Do you need change? Pray. Oh, are your children hurting? Pray. You got a new job? Pray. Are there problems at your current job? Pray. Problems in your marriage? Pray. Listen to me. Your prayers Go before the most holy place in the universe. You keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. Well, then there's the golden lampstand with the seven lamps. And my goodness, this was uh, an amazing piece of furniture. It was solid gold. It's the only source of light in the holy place. and It's the only source of light inside once you get inside the tent. And it seems to symbolize at least, uh, has three symbolic meanings. First, light. Let there be light. And then the seven lamps deal with creation and the seven days. and, And the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, okay? And then just, you know, it just symbolizes beauty. It's just beautiful. And we don't know how tall it was or... Or what the dimensions were, but it was just a beautiful piece of furniture. It was crafted by these spirit filled, uh, uh, appointed divine servants of the Lord. And then there's the table of bread before the presence of God, it's a very simple table. It probably wasn't any bigger than the communion table that we see there. And it's, you know, 36 by 18 by 18. I mean, it's just, there's a, there's a rim of gold around it and six loaves of bread um, by two columns, one for each, one loaf for each tribe of Israel. And it was changed every week. And when it was swapped out, then the priests consumed the bread and, And oh that was an important meaning because you see, the ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, bread was for the gods. And bread was an offering for the gods. And you know, for all of because they were hungry, so they were looking for a temple. You know, for all of their supposed power, the gods of the ancient Near East just couldn't cook. But not Israel's God. Not here. The Lord doesn't even have an appetite. In fact, Psalm 50, verse 12 informs us, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So, so God grew the grain to provide the bread, and the bread is for us. The priest would consume it because the priest represents the people. It's for us. It represents God's gracious provision. And this echoes every time we pray the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. Amen. Well, then there are two other pieces of furniture that are outside the tent itself. And we'll talk about those. The bronze bath. The bronze bath. So the priests had to wash before their service. And no dimensions on this were given. We don't know how large it was. We don't know. But it symbolized that the privilege of serving the Lord and His people, the privilege of serving the Lord requires purity, ritual purity, the bronze bath. And then the last piece is the bronze altar. This was the largest piece of furniture. It was seven seven feet by seven feet by four feet high. And and that would be the very first piece of furniture that the worshiper would see on entering the courtyard of the tabernacle. Let's go back to the iteration of the tabernacle here, if we could see that. Uh, I mean, the whole complex, I'm sorry. There we go. So that's like God's front yard, <laughs> the altar and the basin. And the worshipers were allowed there, but they couldn't go into the tent itself Only the priest could go into the first section of the tent. And then the back section was limited to the high priest. But the very first piece of furniture that the worshiper saw on entering was an altar. And what does that mean? It means that that the problem of unforgiven sin has to be dealt with. First thing. Bronze altar. So there are the seven pieces of furniture and but it's not just furniture don't just call it furniture it tells a story and what is that story well that story relates to hebrews chapter 9 verse 23 hebrews 9:23 says this thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the tabernacle, this compound, was actually a copy of the heavenly realm, it's a facsimile of, of the heavenly realm. And the seven pieces of the tabernacle signify the story of our salvation. It's the story of a holy God who makes it possible for sinners, for rebels, for enemies to become his children. That's the story. That's seven pieces of furniture tell one story. The story of how we belong, we can belong to the family of God. So can you imagine if you could get inside that tent? I mean, walking into the tabernacle, the beauty that you would see, it would be beautiful. It really would, because there's the, the golden lamps, and there's just the glow, and just the ambiance, and the gold and the red and the purple and the colors and the aroma of the incense. It's, it's like entering another world. It is. It's a copy of the heavenly realm. And, and no wonder Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you? What's the answer to that question? No one. (laughs) That's right. No one. And that's what the word holy means. Holy means separate, unique, different, unparalleled, in a class all its own, incomparable. Imagine the strongest gust of wind knocking you to the ground. Feel the deepest love you've ever known. Shiver from the rawest cold you've ever felt. Picture a wall of ocean waves slapping you beneath the sea. Relive the solemn moment of sunrise in the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Recall your nervous self-consciousness before that larger-than-life celebrity. I'm telling you what, the God of the Bible is larger, stronger, smarter, deeper, and more famous. He is above all, over all, beneath all, through all, the cause of it all, the end of it all. He's not one of the boys. And he's not the man upstairs. He's holy. I am God and not man. The holy one among you. And nowhere in scripture is God spoken of as good, good, good. Or awesome, awesome, awesome. Or loving, loving, loving. According to Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 there are four cherubim, these supernatural living creatures who were created for one purpose and one purpose alone. Ceaselessly before the throne of Almighty God, they cry out, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. And it never gets old. Don't just call it furniture. Does, does this resonate with anybody's heart here? And if you, if you have an inkling of interest, if that draws you in any way, you know, if you're saying to yourself, "You know, there's, there's, there's got to be more to this life." You know what? There is. The furniture's talking. Are you listening to the furniture? Is it any wonder that Psalm 27.4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord. One thing. God, I just want one thing. I don't want, no, I don't want more money. I don't want more stuff. I, I want one thing. Here it is. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. Oh my goodness. To be so transfixed and to be so captivated with the beauty of God. I mean, you you were made for that. We were. To long for God. Uh, Sometimes I think that we think that discipleship and Christian maturity is a matter of acquiring more (laughs) Bible knowledge. And knowledge is important. I mean, we live in an academic culture here. Of course it's important. But listen to me. Jesus wants to do more than just inform our minds. He wants our hearts. He's not satisfied with simply adding data to your brain. He wants to shape your desires. One author put it this way. Discipleship is more than knowing and learning. It's about hungering and thirsting after. What are you hungry and thirsty after? See. Well, God helped shape Israel's appetites for him by teaching them to live by faith. To live by faith. And here's what I mean by that. So, all of these descriptions, especially of the gold pieces, so the value of the gold The value of the metal diminishes the closer, the the more we get away from the most sacred space, right? It goes from gold to bronze, see? And so, you know, for all of the beauty of the gold that I just mentioned, nearly all of Israel would never have seen that. You know, nearly all of Israel would never have seen the Ark of the Covenant. Whenever the tabernacle was set up, it was a series of perimeters. There's the Holy of Holies, there's the most holy place, then there's the courtyard, then the Levites surrounding the perimeter. And when the ark traveled, nobody saw the ark. What they saw, because the ark was covered with three blankets, three layers. The most you'd get to see were the poles that these priests were carrying. Think about it. God God went to all of this trouble to have all this expensive furniture made, and then he didn't let anybody see it. What's with that? Well, first of all, he saw it. It's for him. It's his space, this ornate furniture. He was pleased with it. And beyond that, he wanted to teach his people to live by faith. And isn't that what we learn in Hebrews 11:6? 6? For without faith, it is impossible to please God for anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him so god requires faith so almost no one no one almost no one saw the 10 commandments in the ark what did they see this beautiful blue wrapped object with bowls they believed it was the ark and they believed that it contained the 10 commandments for they trusted the credibility Of reliable witnesses. So we talk about Jesus here every week, don't we? And we sing about Jesus and we say Jesus is fully God and fully human. And we hold to the historical bodily resurrection of Christ based on credible eyewitnesses. I've never seen Jesus. No. No, but how did you become a Christian? Because there was something in someone's life. That's it's how you became a Christian, too, It's because of someone else. You saw something different in someone's life. They weren't perfect, but, you know, they had life. You had stuff. They had life. You had a job. They had life. You have a family. It's good, but it's not, it doesn't give life. God gives life. And you ask, what makes you different? And that person said, do you really want to know? I do. I want to know. And they said, there is a man who is a God-man who changed my life, and his name is Jesus. And you believed. And he said, I want him in my life. Are you willing to trust him even when you don't know the outcomes? No matter what comes your way? See, see faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is a decision based on the evidence of credible eyewitnesses. And here's what these credible eyewitnesses say. God is God and we're not. God is holy and his access is limited. So the story is that he's holy. We want to be with him. But there's this problem. There's this, we cannot get to him because of the barrier of unforgiven sin. And someone might be thinking, oh, there he goes again, talking about sin. If I hear another preacher talking about sin, I just don't know what I'm going to do. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Let's just go there. Okay? All right. So let me just ask this question. How much sin do you think it would be wise for God to let into heaven? I mean, what would be the acceptable level of sin for God to allow in the realm of eternal life. Okay? What is it? Should, should he let 5%? Or, you know, 1%? Or half a percent? What's, what's the number? What's the number? Well, you know that the answer to that question has to be zero. Really, it, it does. We say, well, why? Okay, let's go there. It's okay. It's okay to be curious. Let's just talk it out. Okay? So, when Olympic athletes are tested performance-enhancing drugs. The amount prohibited is what? Huh? Yeah. Now, here it is. Here's the actual verbiage. Any. That's what the policy says. Uh, it's International Olympic Committee Anti-Doping Rules, Article 2.1.3. I looked it up. That's what I do. Um, so... Here it is, the presence of any quantity of a prohibited substance shall constitute an anti-doping violation. The presence of any quantity, any. So the blood is either clean or it's not. The standard for passing is 0% of banned substances. So, you know, they can't protest, yeah, but I only have traces of banned substances, so I don't use them too much. No, the standard is perfection. When when someone wants to donate blood, the blood bank has to ensure that the donor's blood is completely free from viruses, like HIV. The person can't protest. Well, yeah, my my blood is mostly HIV-free. I'm not not doing as bad as some people who have full-blown AIDS. What's the problem? The standard has to be absolute purity. I mean, you know that, right? Well, how much more than with our relationship with God? God's standard for heaven must be sinless perfection just as Adam and Eve were before the fall. So just being a comparatively good person isn't good enough. Like that commercial? Just okay is not Okay. And you know why, don't you? Because sin is not just an evil act or an evil word or an evil. Sin's a virus. Sin is a malignancy. And if God were to let us all in, into his eternal dimension with sin, still a part of our spiritual makeup, we would pollute the entire realm of heaven. starting And we'd start the whole mess all over again. So God bans sin from heaven. He quarantines the infection and the infected to a different realm. And that is called hell. Hell is God's quarantine solution for people who want to hold on to their sin rather than accepting Christ's cleansing. Psalm 15 gets at God's standard when David says, of the tabernacle. King David worshipped in the tabernacle. His son Solomon built the temple. But David worshipped in the tabernacle. And King David said, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? That means who shall live. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest. In that day, uh, Hebrews were not to charge Fellow Hebrews' interest on, like, loans. They could charge the Gentiles. God's word allowed that, but not their own. And does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things shall never be moved. All of these things. Question, who does these things? No one. No, no, all have sinned. And God will not violate His character. God won't lower His standards, and we can't meet His standards. That is what we call bad news. Houston, we have a problem. And here's what God does. He accepts a substitute who will take the punishment for our rebellion. You see, both sin and salvation are about substitution. Sin happens when I substitute myself for God. When I say, I'm God. I'm God. And inevitably, sin happens then. Salvation happens when God provides a substitute for my sin. When He takes a place that's reserved for me. And God did that in Christ who is holy. Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ is the fullest expression of the furniture. Christ who was washed for service. Christ who is the high priest. Christ who offered himself as a sacrifice. Christ who is the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Christ who is the curtain. Christ who is the way of access to God. Christ who is the menorah of the world the bread of life. You see, Hebrews nine twenty four says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. This is why we passionately pursue him. God who made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God declares us righteous and holy. And in his ascension, he sends his Holy Spirit who now indwells us, this church family, this church community, as his tabernacle so that we can live as a witness to this world. The tabernacle of Exodus was not just for Israel, but so that the nations could see this holy people set apart to this holy God. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.16, you are the tabernacle, the temple of the living God. And this church, This tabernacle indwelled by the Holy Spirit is not just for one ethnic group, but for the nations. That the world might be amazed. Our divisive, partisan world might say, "Where, where do you get this love? And it is from the Spirit of Christ. Oh, don't just call it furniture. It's not just furniture. It's gospel. If the temple could talk, we are the temple. We must talk. We must talk. I just love the book of Exodus. It begins in the darkness of suffering. It ends in the light of the gospel. It begins with cries to God that seem unanswered. It ends with God's activity Among his people. It begins with the seeming absence of God, but it ends with his precious presence among his people in the tabernacle, even as he is among us today. It begins with slavery to that which we cannot escape on our own. It ends with a divine declaration that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation of people of his possession in Christ, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has brought you out of darkness into his marvelous, holy, wonderful light. Oh, church, may God flood us with joy to proclaim his fame. Amen? Amen.